0: And so now we're turning to Revelation chapter 2, we're going to pick up in verse 8, we're studying through this book of Revelation, we we stepped into it as part of this bigger series that we've been in, Alpha and Omega, God from beginning to end, we've walked through uh, many of the of the portions of scripture that are um, highlights, we've not obviously hit every passage, but we've heard from prophets, we've heard from Psalms, we've heard from Old Testament books of law, and, and now we've come to the to the place where we're seeing God begin the work of consummation uh, through his son Jesus. And, and here we are now stepping into the second letter to the seven churches. Uh, last week, we studied from Ephesus, the st- studied the letter to Ephesus. And you remember, these seven churches are representative. They are representative of the whole church. That's what the number seven in the book of Revelations says revelation. It's a singular word, so sorry about that. Uh, it, 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 the number seven represents wholeness or completeness, perfection. And so, so we would suggest that the seven churches, though they're real churches with real issues in real cities, that they are representative churches. And what we're building through this or what we're doing through this, and I'm encouraging you to consider it this way, is that as we look at these churches, and as we look at God's, at Jesus's commendation to these churches, his complaints against these churches, his call on these churches, and his um, commitment to these churches, we're, we're, we're asking the question, would the Lord say this about us? If w- would we receive this letter, or would we, is there something that we can learn from this principle? So he didn't give us these letters so we could look at the church in Ephesus and say, man, those guys were jacked up. He gave us these letters and let every one of those churches hear these letters so that we might recognize what might this have to say to us. And every letter ends with that same call. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Not just the people in Ephesus, not just the people in Smart, the people in church. From every point in history, from the time of his ascension to the time of his return, we are looking through this. And so by the time we're done, we're going to have basically seven principles that we can recognize as this is what Jesus says is a healthy church. It's not a metric system that measures the organization of church, it's not a, it's not a, um, Butts, budgets, and building kind of measurement, this is how you know it's a healthy church because there's lots of butts in the seats, there's big buildings and campuses to point to, and there's a big budget to spend. That's not the measure of health of a church. That might be the health of an organization, but what does Jesus commend is a healthy church. What does Jesus complain against as unhealthy in a church? And so last week, we saw that in Ephesus, and this was the principle Good works and good doctrine are necessary in the church, but not sufficient for the church. A word-centered church that lacks love will receive judgment, not reward, right? Doctrine is so important, so vital. Good works, living life, uh, doing the right thing, the God-honoring thing is such a good thing. But if we do that out of a motive other than love, it undermines everything, destroys it all. So here we are. Right? We need to hear that. We need to be reminded of that. But this week, we turn to the second letter. This one addressed to the angel in church of Smyrna. Second, or, or not second, Revelation chapter 2, verse 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you were rich and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not but a synagogue, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribula- tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Father, these your words to, to your people, your, your, your revelation, your unveiling, your uncovering of truth, for your people to hear. I would ask today it really is every week, that we would have ears to hear that our church would hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We wouldn't just hear it and it bounce off our eardrums, but it would—it would cut us to the heart. That it would—that it would do the work that it's intended to do. That our desires would be shaped. That our love would be just resplendent. That our 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 lives would reflect the glory of your name, no matter what the cost might be. Move on us today, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, each week, I'm I'm going to seek to give you a principle. I'm going to start off with that principle every week, and we're going to walk through the passage to see it. This week, it, it is this. The enemy will lead you to believe you are destitute and defeated, but our Lord's eternal perspective is far more trustworthy so we can endure fearlessly and faithfully. The enemy will lead you to believe you are destitute and defeated. But our Lord's eternal perspective is far more trustworthy so we can endure fearlessly and faithfully. Now just imagine, you look around this room. Think about the people in this room. Think about the number of people in this room. Think about the things that we've endured over the last couple of years. Think about the people that used to be in this room. How do you think the enemy has sought to use that in our lives? Man, we have been pruned deeply. We have carried some weight. We have felt the hurt. We've been betrayed. We've been slandered. But man, it doesn't even come close to what these people were dealing with. Let's not not, not think too highly of ourselves. Smyrna was a beautiful city. It was was known for its beauty. It was known for the the, the harbor that was there. It was called the Ornament of Asia. The city was laid out along uh, wide, beautifully paved streets, was adorned with temples, baths, a, a gymnasium, a theater, a stadium, and a library. At the time of the writing of Revelation, it's estimated, obviously none of us were there, so it's an estimate, somewhere between 100 to 200,000 people in this city. So a city about the size of Springfield. It was influential in Rome's cultic emperor worship. It had been honored twice with the, with the opportunity to have a temple built within that city that would honor the, the emperor of Rome as a God Caesar is Lord. They would make sacrifices unto him in worship. And Smyrna had a impressive harbor with vital trade connections. And, and and so there was lots of people through it, lots of affluence, lots of money, lots of privilege, lots of opportunity. Probably not much different than our own little city. Very religious with just a little bit of gospel. Among all these affluent people, all these privileged lives were these Christians who were suffering because they had trusted and followed Jesus. Because they were just a little bit too serious about their faith in Jesus, they wouldn't be accepted among the pagan religions or among the Jewish religion. They were being accused... They were being persecuted on every side. we don't know when Christianity came to Smyrna. There's some that think that, that maybe there were people from Smyrna that go, down to, <clears throat> that go down to Jerusalem. Some Jews that went down to Jerusalem on Pentecost and heard Peter preach that first gospel message. And in, in the preaching of that first gospel message, you know, 3,000 people came to believe. And then those 3,000 people go home. And they take that faith with them. So there are some people that think that that's where it originated. Others think that it's possibly through the preaching of Paul from the church that he planted alongside Aquila and Priscilla in Ephesus. If you remember last week, we pointed out that in Acts 19, Ephesus was the central point from which all of Asia heard the gospel. It's possible that the, the gospel went to Smyrna just 30-some miles, like 35 miles north of Ephesus, went there from the work that Paul was doing and I've said however it came there it doesn't matter so much how it got there it was there and it was real and it was true and you know how we know it was real we know you know how we know it's true because when Jesus wrote and spoke to them he affirmed them he commended them and he had no complaint against them (laughs) Jesus' Jesus' letter, what's surprising about this letter, though, is it's not an encouragement to just, hey, here's the the, the strategy. Step back. Be quiet. Sit down. Right? He, He doesn't say to them, withdraw. He doesn't say to them, quit living out in Smyrna. Get up and go move. Instead, he calls for absolute faithfulness. Keep doing what has brought you this trouble. Keep doing it. We need to hear this letter. How many of us don't do the things we're called to do because we're afraid? How many of us are silent because we're afraid? How many of us are, are less willing to risk a job than, the fact that, than, than risk the fact that somebody might actually come to know Jesus? We need to hear this letter. We're Christians who live among an affluent people. We're Christians who, whose lifestyles, and, and I think if we're honest, we, we would prefer uh, 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 who, these affluent lifestyles over the hardships that, that our brothers and sisters around the world face. A couple of years ago, you know, when we were arguing about masks and race and racism, you know what's happening around the world? Christians are dying because they believe in Jesus. Just let that sit on us for a second. When we sit around and argue and divide over Calvinism and Arminianism, Christians are being persecuted simply because they will not denounce the name of Jesus. I'm not against making sure and calling out these things. I'm not against us being precise in our doctrine. I'm not against us. Hear me. I'm I'm not saying we shouldn't be serious about those things. I read an article from Rip. Nick Ripton this week about Christians who are persecuted around the world that come to America and they end up quit stopping to practice their faith because American Christians are so unwilling to suffer. They come here and they get, um, they get de- depressed about faith in America because we'd rather have our fluent lifestyles, our comfortable things, our positions of power. I mean, while we've been sitting around arguing about what the right political power should be, we've had brothers and sisters getting jailed all around the world, trying to hold on to a place that doesn't jail us. They're going to jail. This is still, this is still an absolute strategy the enemy continues to use to cause people to believe that they are destitute and defeated or cause people to live in fear that they will be destitute and defeated if they do the thing the Lord calls them to do. Around the world, Open Doors. Let me, let me introduce the place I got these stats from. Open Doors is a ministry that focuses on supporting and encouraging persecuted Christians all around the world. Every year they put out these statistics about, about what's happening among persecuted Christians. Around the world, they they highlight 360 million Christians suffer high levels of persecution and discrimination. In 2022, the numbers that they promote, some estimate much higher ones uh, because the way they define martyrdom, dying for your faith, but I believe they, they present the clearest picture. In 2022, 5,621 Christians were murdered for their faith. Not actively out evangelizing, but simply because they would not denounce the name of Jesus and compromise in some other religious practice. 5,621 Christians murdered for their faith. In 2022, 2,110 church buildings and Christian, other Christian buildings were attacked. In 22, 22, 2022, 5,000 259 Christians were abducted and kidnapped. 4,542 were detained or arrested. One in seven Christians are persecuted around the world. One in seven. One in five in Africa are persecuted. Two in five in Asia. And we get upset because we get sued if we don't bake a cake or sell some flowers. We need to hear this letter. We need to hear, we, we need to, we need to hear this letter because we're so worried about losing some personal rights. As if you need a constitution or a government to give you permission to worship the God that woke you up from death and made you alive. We need to hear this letter. If trends continue, It doesn't look like it's slowing down. We need to hear this letter because we may be in a place, we may live in a place soon that's no different. And we can point our fingers and we can blame sinful sinners and sinful people. We can blame the devil. But the point of this letter is that God may be actually allowing that to test us. We need to hear This letter in fact (laughs) we need to hear what Jesus commends I might be speaking out of turn here but I don't think there's going to be a place where he commends in any of the churches positions of power and richness and acceptance and culture You get that? But what he does commend, what Jesus does commend for the church in Smyrna, and I think probably those suffering Christians in churches around the world today, enduring tribulation. You see it there? I know your tribulation. He says to the the Ephesians, I know your works. He's going to call that out in some other churches. To the church in Smyrna, he's not pointing at their works. He's He's pointing to the circumstance within which they live I know your situation. I know your circumstance. I know where you are and what you are dealing with. I know what's happening around you. I know that you're being oppressed. That's the word tribulation is. It's a word of oppression. It's a word of affliction. It's it's a hardship that's being brought to you by others. I know this. How does he know it? Because he's still the God who's walking among the lampstands. He's still that one that has, has uh, the seven stars in his right hands. And he's, he's still the one that's, that John saw walking among the lampstands. And he's the first and the last. He knows all of history. He's seen it all. He's been there before we were there. He knows. I know your situation. I know your circumstances. I know the struggle, the oppression, the affliction that's being brought to you. Because you're mine. And closely connected to it is the poverty, enduring poverty. The the word that's used there, it it refers to an extreme poverty. They're losing work. This harbor that that would have been filled with boats, that that would have uh, jumped onto trade routes, that would go all across Asia, Asia, places for them to work, things for them to do. They're not able to work there. They're not able to earn we see this kind of thing happen in Africa. When, when we see believers come to faith, we're calling them to trust and follow Jesus. And, that, and in doing that, they recognize, I'm not just changing religion. Like we, we might go from being Baptist to Presbyterian or Presbyterian to Baptist or... It's not just changing a denominational perspective or a religion going from Christianity to Roman Catholicism. It's not the same thing because we practice religion here as an external trait. It's something external to us, right? For them, as as they step out of Islam and begin to follow Jesus, they're leaving everything behind. Their families want nothing to do with them. There's a belief that if they begin to follow Jesus, they will actually quit being black. Think about that. You're going to look like those milky people that come over. They're weak, they can't stand the heat. They've got to bring all these comfortable things that make them be able to endure this life that we live. Not all of them believe that, but we've heard it. They, th- they, 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 they are no longer acceptable at family holidays are, or along among the, the people of their village. Many of them are run out of their villages. We had a a, a good friend. In fact, he died just last year. The first believer in our village took all. No. Kappa, sorry. First believer in the village of Kappa. He was so excited to follow Jesus. He told us on the day that he professed faith, when you come back, there's going to be Christians everywhere because I'm going to be telling everybody about Jesus. The next time we were there, you know who wasn't? He wasn't. You know why he wasn't? Because his brothers and his his cousins that were in his compound, in his family compound, beat him and sent him away. Our brother Sajo. Man, there's so many things we'd long for Sajo. We've watched Sajo for so long. He's a faithful brother. He's such a servant. The people there in Tokal, they recognize it. He was trying to live in this village as one of the, in Tokal as one of the very few believers at the very beginning. And no one would give him his work, give him their work. No one would give him an opportunity. And so we had to help him get a job that wasn't dependent upon the village anymore. And so with our partners at South Haven at the time, we set him up with a tire business because the truckers on the road with a flat tire don't care what his religion is. In fact, most of them will never know they just need their tire fixed. But in time, he's been received back in. He's been accepted. There's two, two widows, Fanta and Tutu. <coughs> they, were, they, they were wives to the same husband who was killed in, an, in some sort of uh, vehicle accident. I think he was on a motorcycle and he got killed. Their widows... And they're being taken care of by the village until they profess faith. Now these women take food out of their garden and go sell it just so they can buy a little bit of rice. They understand completely what it means, give us our daily rice. Tribulation and poverty, oppression, putting them down putting them in a place to make them pay because they follow Jesus and make them hungry and, and feel empty. And he commends the slander. He doesn't commend the people that slander. He doesn't commend that this is a good thing that they're doing. He commends the endurance of slander. You ever been accused of evil even though you knew you were doing the exact right thing? That's a hard thing to bear. The people that you used to sit around and celebrate and eat with and fellowship with in in your tradition suddenly want nothing to do with you. And not only do they not want anything to do with you, they begin to point fingers at you and call you horrific things. You are evil. You are not loved by God, you are hated, you are despised, you are an outcast, you have no position, you are not, you you don't belong, you are worthless to us. Twice we see, twice we see in this passage how the enemy is using this as deception and seeking to prevent. Present defeat twice we see. You're enduring tribulation, you're enduring poverty, but what does Jesus say? But you are rich. You got no money in the bank, you got no positions or opportunity in culture, you're not received or welcomed, you only get trouble from them. They beat you, they cast you out, they overlook you. But you are rich. You're wealthier than any of them. And these Jews that slander you, these Jews that point fingers at you, they're not real Jews. They're the synagogue of Satan. They belong to his house. They're doing his work. You think about that, just how shocking that is in this time, right? Just how shocking this is because Jews were claiming to be God's people. Like they're still going around seeking to represent themselves as the representatives of God, as the chosen people. And yet when their Messiah came, they rejected him and they called for his crucifixion at the hands of Rome. And they did the devil's work. Paul would later say, you're not just a Jew because you're a Jew outwardly. This is an inward work, a circumcision that takes place in a heart. In Romans 2.28, He's saying, Smyrna, you're the real Jews. These guys are imposters. They are Jews in name only. Like, that doesn't mean we get to get up and get angry because oh, or get excited because now Israel's being attacked and all this stuff going on over there. And Oh, man, take them. Man, if that's your heart, go back and read the letter to Ephesus. Listen to that sermon. If you can relish in the fact that people are being killed and maimed and warring with one another. If you can relish in that, you might have another problem. But but Jesus isn't afraid to call out that these Jews are not what they appear to be. Look, there's deception and, and, and counterfeit all over the place. In fact, that's the beauty of what Revelation is as we come to these letters even. There's this unveiling of the truth of God's word and his work throughout the history of the church. And he comes to these letters and he reveals himself to John. So much so, so such a powerful and glorious revelation that, that John falls on his face as if dead. Right? And Jesus comes to him and says, hey John, don't fear. i got something else to show you. And, he, and part of that first vision, we're not done with the first vision. We're still in the first vision. I, I need you to tell these things to my people. I need you to make sure that they hear these words. I've got important truths to show them. But the vision doesn't stop at the letters. The visions continue. And we're going to see as we work through the book of Revelation that Jesus Christ has always been sovereign in all of history. And that no matter how much the enemy might seek to to convince you that you're destitute and defeated, Jesus reigns over everything. There is no greater truth. He is seeking to deceive us, the enemy is. He is seeking to convince us to listen to our flesh and to the influence of the world so that we'll sit down and be quiet, so that we'll listen to the the stupid ideas of the religious elite so that we can pretend that we're still a moral majority. I'm convinced that that happened decades and decades ago. The shift from moral majority to moral minority probably is never really true. We've probably always been a minority in this country. But there are plenty of imposters. Our faith is being tested right now. How many people are leaving? Because it's just too difficult. How many people are willing to take accept a counterfeit, accept a fluffy feel-good message? Because it's just too difficult. We need to hear this letter. Jesus commends the church for enduring these things. And then what's his complaint against this church? Did you hear it? No. Because there's not one. This church is being faithful already. This church is sound in doctrine already. This church is loving one another and their enemy and the Lord already. Were they a perfect church? Probably not, right? Like, I mean, we know better than that. There's still struggles within, but they're striving after these things. You know why I think that they were that they were striving after that? Why that those things were probably so apparent in this church? I think it was because they were enduring tribulation, poverty, and slander, as opposed to affluence and comfort and ease. Jesus didn't have a complaint against Smyrna. Even if there were ways that they needed to continue in repentance. Even if there's ways in which they needed. There's no major concerns for this church. This church is commending. Because they're striving after him. And it's evident in, in the circumstance and situation in which they are enduring. So what's his call then on the church? What does Jesus have? If they've already got it figured out, if they already know what they're doing, if they're already sound in doctrine, if they're already faithful, if they're already doing good works, if they're already after these things, if they're already being a loving body of believers, what does he then call them to? First, do not fear. It's crazy to me, right? Like, he doesn't say hide. He doesn't say shut your mouth and quit being so vocal about your faith. He doesn't say compromise, make them feel comfortable with you. He starts with don't fear. And why don't fear? <laughs> because you got more suffering coming. I shouldn't be giggling at that. Jesus, did you not just hear what we're enduring? you got more ahead of you. Do Not fear. It's reminiscent of God's words to the Israelites as He's preparing them to go into the promised land. When he says in Deuteronomy 3:22, you shall not fear them. For it is the Lord your God who fights for you. All these people, all these more powerful countries, all these other nations, you don't fear them. You got no reason to fear them. Because God's gonna fight for you. Hey, do you let me just ask you a question? This, this, is, this is That's old covenant, but there's a, certainly a principle that applies to the new covenant. Do you believe that God's fighting for you? Do you believe that God's for you? Do you believe that God's on your side? Let me say that differently, that you're on God's side. You should not fear them, for it's the Lord your God who fights for you. Or, or, or when Jesus was speaking to his disciples... And he's about to send them out. He says, I'm sending you out as sheep among the wolves. He knew exactly what he was doing. He's sending meat. He's sending a meal, right? What do wolves eat? Sheep. I'm sending you into and among the people who want to feast on you. But then he tells them, Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. I don't like the idea of getting the body killed either. (laughs) Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Do you fear God more than you fear people? Or do we have such a warped view of his grace? That we can't recognize the greatness and glory of an eternal God that is first and last. What's crazy is is this idea of Jesus being our best friend and our buddy. He, He claims it himself, right? He is our friend. He said to his disciples, I'm no longer calling you servants, you're my friends. But don't forget, he is the sovereign God who is first and last. Right? I mean, that's uh, the words of the first and last. The one who died, I was dead, and I came to life. And this this idea, the first and the last, it connects to the first chapter, immediately to the first chapter where God Himself, the divine God over all of heaven and earth, said Himself, I'm the first and last. Jesus just made a claim to be God. And we're going to treat him just like we treat one another? Man. The initial reality of Jesus' divinity should cause us to quake. He has the power of life and death. And he gives it as he sees fit. But he's also the one that when John saw him, he fell flat on his face as if dead silenced and immobile by the glory and greatness of the, of the revelation of Jesus Christ before him falls flat on his face. What does Jesus do? He walks over and he touches him with his right hand. Do not fear. The one that should be feared most of all says to the one who's expressing that fear, John, get up. You don't have to fear me because I'm for you. And because I'm for you, you don't have to fear anybody else either. It isn't that the fear of the Lord doesn't have a place in the life of a Christian. Obviously, there's a right understanding of this, a right way in which we approach this, right? There's a right way in which we Perceive this fear because, because that initial reaction, that initial realization of God's greatness and glory, that He creates the world. I mean, and, and, and we know it took seven days and he did, but he did it by his word, he could have just said earth, right? He could have just said exist and it existed. And he decided to do it in seven days. Exist. That God, the one who made light shine. The one who will be there in the end to receive all people. Sheep and goats. Who knows our circumstance? Who knows the struggles that we face? Who knows our works? That initial reality of his glory and greatness. His majesty and his sovereignty. His power should cause us to quake. Until we hear him say, do not. Luke one fifty, this beautiful passage, Mary has just found out that she's going to be the, son, the mother of the Son of God. Like She's just found out that the Holy Spirit is going to come down her, impregnate her, and Jesus is going to be God's Son, and she's going to give birth to this, to, to this baby. And she responds with a song, it's called The Magnificent. Luke 1.50, she, she, as part of her song, and His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. So it's it's in the fearing of him. It's in the beginning of that understanding that he could snuff me out at any minute. He could take me out. He is the one that is most fearsome of all. It's in the recognition of that that we actually find his mercy <laughs> and him coming to us and touching us with his hand and saying you do not have to fear. Does that mean we quit revering him or, or standing in awe of him or respecting him or, or understanding the reality of his glory and his greatness? No, it just means that we can be blessed by it. So that it means that we can stand in it. That it means we, we, we are accepted unto it. That we can run into it as, a way, as, as opposed to away from it. This is why John wrote in his first letter to the church a, a letter filled with God's light. The glorious light of God. The, the glorious light of his greatness. And his love. In 1 John 4.18, there is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Do you believe that God loves you? Every one of you as believers in Jesus Christ should recognize that love. For God so loved the world. He sent his only begotten son and whosoever perishes, or whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. In this, we know his love. While, Christ, while yet sinners, Christ died for us. The fear of God for the Christian is not a cowering fear. Quaking fear, but a reverent awe that rightly sees his greatness and glory. That humbles us before him. We would never be so bold to walk into the throne room of heaven in our prayers and say, God, you must. Listen, God, we we need to have a conversation. You don't understand what I'm going through down here. You don't understand how hard this is. We need to have a talk. I want to say this gently, but I think it's deserving of any of us that might say those things. You need to sit down and be quiet. That's exactly what Job recognized in his complaints when God showed up and said, Hey, who are you, old man? Get ready. Stand up here and talk to me now. Uh, I think I'll just be quiet. It, it puts us in a place where we're rightly ordered beneath Him, underneath Him, not, not, not cowering in fear and quaking and trying to run and hide under a rock, but standing in the midst of His glory knowing that that is the greatest place to be. And if we don't have to cower in fear to Him, then there is no reason to fear what people in this world can do to you. If God is for you, who can stand against you? Oh, but don't you know what they've said about me? Don't you know the names they've called about me? Don't don't you know that I'm not accepted among family members? Don't you know that I've been cast out? Don't you know? Yes, I do. And I have been there too. This is why Paul wrote these words to the Roman church in chapter 8, verse thirty: Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Jesus sent us out as a meal for wolves. No. No, he says. That's, that's, it's written that way, but that's not the truth of it. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You need someone bold and brash enough to tell you that you're a conqueror? The word of God says it, so get up and live it. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It's his love that produces this. It's his sacrifice. It's his work on your behalf. For I am sure I am sure, I'm certain, I'm confident of this. There's no doubt in my mind that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation. Like I think he ran out of ideas, but he just wants to cover everything. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. So we don't have to fear. We don't have to fear suffering of any kind for any length of time. I love what he says to the Smyrna church. He says to them, hey, you've been suffering and I'm commending you for enduring it, but don't fear because you're going to suffer. The devil working through his minions, working through sinful people, working through people who would claim to be religious, but aren't working through people who are pagan and don't even pretend to be religious or good people. Or have developed a whole new standard of goodness that if it feels good, do it kind of idea, right? The, the devil working through these kind of people, he's going to imprison you. But just for 10 days. Now there's a lot, uh, numbers almost always, I want to be careful as I say this because you may, you may know of a number that's literal in Revelation. But almost always numbers are not literal. They're almost always representative of something, some other thing. This probably alludes to Daniel and to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they, were, when they were told, hey, for 10 days, for 10 days, give us just Jewish food. Just food that we can eat that's not been, that's not been uh, tainted by uh, sacrificed idols and things like that. Just for 10 days, test us and see if we're not healthy. So it probably alludes back to that. But here's the beauty of it, is that there is an end. There's a limitation to the suffering. You will not suffer forever. There is coming an end to it. God will use it in time for his purpose to test you, to refine you, to, to grow you and mature you. To fear him more than you fear anyone else. To trust him more than you fear others, right? So the suffering of any kind for any length of time. Now, it also probably doesn't mean just 10 days because some of them are gonna be jailed and some of them are, are, are then gonna be called to be faithful unto death. So it may even cost your life but you don't have to fear it. In fact, let me say that a little different. It's not an option. He just commanded them. This isn't something we get to choose to do or not do. Do not fear. It's an imperative. I know what you've endured. I also know what's coming because I am the first and the last. I've already been there. Do not fear. Suffering of any kind for any length of time, anyone or anything in this life. Paul calls out danger, sword, famine, right? Somebody gonna come against you and attack you? You don't have to fear it. Death or life. You don't have to fear the idea of dying. Death has no power over you in Christ any longer. Living this life It's a hard thing. Sometimes it's harder to live this life than actually die. Right? You don't have to fear that. We don't have to be afraid to die in Christ or to live for his name. Angels, you know, those spiritual beings that we don't like to talk about because we're not super mystical people. But the spiritual reality that there's angels and demons out there flying around doing work. Rulers, powers. I think that's probably both rulers and powers, both of the physical kind and of the spiritual. I love that. We have no reason to fear any authority that comes over us because it's only ever been allowed by God. There's a whole whole way we should be approaching it. Until they call us to disobey God or until they call us to, to, to disobey God directly or to not obey him, right? Like if, if there's something that he's, that he's told us to do and they say, don't do it, we still do it. If, if there's something that he, he's, they've told us, don't do, am I saying that right? I'm all mixed up. If there's something that they tell us to do that's against his word, we don't do it. If there's something they tell us not to do that's called to do in his word. So in fact, if they, if they come in, they say, you must fear me. Don't fear them. Because you know better. If they come to you and say, don't worship God, you still worship God. If they come to you and say, don't pray, you still pray. If they come to you and say, you must kill the firstborn child of every household, you don't kill the firstborn child of every household. what, 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 What if I get in trouble for that? Peter made this clear in his first letter to the church. If you suffer for the thing that you've done wrong in which you deserve suffering, that's to be expected. The grace of God is you suffering for doing the right thing, even though you're accused of doing the wrong thing. That's God's grace in our lives. There is no power, there is no ruler, there is no government, there is no spiritual being that can free us to worship God. And there is no ruler and there is no power and there is no spiritual being that can keep us from worshiping God. Only our fear can do that. Do not fear. Present or future, Paul calls out. Present or future. The things that are, and this is beautiful, I, I, I don't know, you know, I don't wanna, I, I, I'd love to sit down and ask these guys at some point, but, but John, as he's writing this letter and Jesus commending this letter, it, it, it's alluding to other things because, because this is God's word and it all works together. But Jesus gives this revelation, he says, I want to tell you about the things that are and the things that will be. Right? I want to tell you about right now, and I want to tell you about what's coming. And Paul, in his eschatological perspective of nothing separating us from the, neither the present things nor the things to come. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Do you know how loved you are? Do, not fear. That's the first one. And the second one, be faithful. Be faithful. Jesus, we're being faithful. keep being faithful. Jesus has all of history. Broadly speaking, he knows all that has happened, will happen, and and is happening right now. He is the first and the last. More narrowly narrowly speaking, he's writing to this church at a particular time and a particular place. He knows your position. He knows our place in history. He's not unaware. He knows it. So be faithful. What does that mean? How do we work that out? Trust him. Trust Him because He's trustworthy. Because He's the God of all creation. He's the one who was in the beginning. He's the one sovereign over what's in the middle. He's the one that's going to be there at the end, waiting to greet His people as they come into His presence. He knows every twist and turn, every left and right, every up and down. He knows all of it. And in fact, He's ordained it to test you and refine you. Not to punish you, but to discipline you as if you're his children. Is there not a parent in this room that would discipline their children? I discipline mine. Sometimes they, they just annoyed me. Your parents probably did the same to you. Maybe some of you are still dealing with that but I also disciplined them at times because I loved them and I wanted them to grow up as godly men who lived their life committed to the Lord. He's always doing that. There's never a moment that he sought to punish you because he's loving you. That is unquestionable. You can be faithful because everything that he has allowed and caused, ordained in your life is to test your faith, to refine it, this faith that's more precious than gold, as Peter calls it. Trust him more than you fear the enemy and his lies. It's, it's so easy to hear the influence of the world. Oh, we've got to acquiesce on this point. we just got to give up this, this view of sexual morality. We, we, we just cannot continue to be Bible people when it comes to sexual morality. We just cannot continue to be Bible people. When it comes to matters of gender, identity, I mean, that's backwards. That's like old, old stuff. That stuff is, I mean, we know better today. Science. You know, this, this religion that's based on what we can see and observe with our limited perspectives that, that our hands are just about, you know, just about to the end of our noses, we can see and observe and experience science, it tells us that, that God's word couldn't be right about these things we need more than god's word in some of these areas. Are you serious? Is that where the church not not ours I know I know I know trust me. Is that where the church broadly speaking would be headed? Hmm. The enemy is seeking to deceive and make you believe that we are destitute. That we have been defeated. Don't believe it. Trust the Lord more. Be faithful. Trusting him. Trust him more than your own limited perspective. You know this, it just feels like God would not want me to experience this. This blessing I got, this windfall of money, and this I got all this nice stuff. It's it's just God's blessing on my life. Don't be deceived. We'll see that the enemy in the churches to come, the enemy can use affluence to deceive you, to make you believe that you're blessed. I mean, God God wouldn't want me to be alone the rest of my life. I mean, this is a tough one. God wouldn't ask for my kids to go and be in places that are dangerous and scary for me to let them be and go. He sent his apostles as sheep among the wolves. He didn't call his church to cower and hide and build fences, he called us to be faithful. To think that we can protect our families better than he? Don't, don't misunderstand. I, I'm not for being unwise and being foolish. And, but a lot of the talk I hear, parents, and this is adult children and smaller children. In fact, I remember my own mother one time telling me, and this is not to shame her parents, but they didn't want her to go to the mission field because it was dangerous for her. Children, your children, if they're the Lord's, as much as you can't be separated from His love, they can't either. Can you rest in His protection of them? Can you rest that His best interest and His best good might be some suffering that they endure? Some lie that they're deceived by for some part of their life that He then calls them out of to the glory of His name. Can you trust His love for them as much as you do for your children? Or as much as you do for yourself? Can you trust your love the Lord's love for your children as much as you do for yourself. And we get these perspectives in our head and think that we're supposed to do all that. And recently in our church, we have heard that overextension. I must protect my children at all costs. I'm not against wise living. But what can you protect your children from, really? Trust Him more than your own limited perspective. Continue living obediently to His commands. Let me go ahead and talk about kids here again. Raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Make sure that they know that He is the sovereign, great, and glorious God, that they should quake and cower in front of until He touches them on the shoulder and says, Do not fear. My mercy is for you. Make sure that they're able to live in this fallen, sinful, broken world. Do everything you can in your power to educate them and prepare them, not just to live and get a job and be productive members of society, but to live forever in heaven. And by the way, make sure that you do everything you can that they tell their children, and their children tell their children about the glory and the greatness of God, trusting always that the Lord has them as much as he has you continue living obediently to his commands. But what if I lose my job? Jesus commends lifestyles that live in poverty. He commends people who are slandered for his name. He commends the suffering that comes as us seeking to live as Christian people in an unchristian world. He calls us himself to live in the world, but not of the world. To not run and hide But to live every day publicly as believers, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, obedient to his commands. Continue living as a witness to him. But wait a minute, that's what got me here. That's the problem. Like, I've been doing that and it's not worked out well. It didn't go the way I planned. Keep doing it. Do not fear. Be faithful. And here's my commitment to you, Jesus says. Jesus' commitment to the church in Smyrna, the victor's crown. Instead of destitution, instead of defeat, instead of loss, a crown. And it's not a crown like a king's crown. The language there is a victor's crown. It's like at the Olympic Games, they would give a, a wreath to, to, to the victor, right? And there's all kinds of language in Paul's letters about running the race as to win. Live to be the victor, not, to, not, not winning over your brothers and sisters in Christ, but being welcomed into Christ's family as a victor. And he greets you, and instead of saying, hey, get out, he puts a crown, a victor's crown, a wreath of victory on your head. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to ensure that you recognize you have won. No matter what the lies were, no matter what deceit and, and, and problem and oppression came your way, you are a victor. Now I'm going to greet you and show you that much. And you won't suffer the second death. There is an end in suffering. The second death, this is again, he's referring now to the end of this letter, which sets the churches in the letters, preparing them to see Jesus working through the history of the church and in the, and in the, in the world, unveiling the reality of the spiritual work that's happening behind every physical circumstance throughout the history of the church, looking forward to the moment that they enter his presence, and instead of being thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death, that's Re- Revelation 21, 19, 20. I can't remember which chapter, I didn't write it down. The second death being thrown into the lake of fire with the devil and Satan, Satan and demons. For all you suffered in this life, that suffering will not increase to the point that you're thrown into the lake of fire. In fact, it's at that moment that your suffering will forever end. Every tear will be wiped away. Every pain will be gone. All the mental anguish, all the struggle will be turned to joy. And we will be in his presence forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, we need to hear this letter. The enemy will lead you to believe you are destitute and defeated, but our Lord's eternal perspective is far more trustworthy, so we can endure fearlessly and faithfully. That promise is very specific to God's covenant people, people of the new covenant, who he calls his own. Children, religious, trying to earn your way, everyone that has not actually followed Jesus Christ, hear this word. You don't walk fearlessly and faithfully. It may not just be a momentary lapse of judgment. It might be that you've never followed him at all. You will not see a crown. And you will endure the weight of the second death. So please, repent trust in him and him alone. Let's pray.